Welcome to episode 27.5 of the How Did Happen podcast, hosted by Mike Malatesta. We added the .5 because that's how we let you know this is something different than our usual podcast show. This is part two of our three video podcast series where Alita Norris, the leadership expert and co-founder of Living as a Leader, digs into Mike's brain and asks him some thought-provoking questions about blogs he's written on his website, MikeMalatesta.com. I'm Joe DiNucci, Mike's podcast producer and blog collaborator. In this episode, Mike shares two blogs, one about what happened when he became overly confident riding a motorcycle, and another about being terrified when he was presented with the opportunity to live out his earliest childhood dream. Alita has some terrific questions for Mike after he shares each story. And if you missed the first part of the video podcast series, check out episode 25.5. You can watch the video on MikeMalatesta.com or listen on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for being a How to Happen listener. Let's catch up with Mike on his first story, All Lessons Come with Pain. So here we go. All Lessons Come with Pain. If you've ever crashed a motorcycle, you're probably familiar with what I felt like when I did. I shouldn't have been surprised since I have a history of crashes when it comes to trying new things equipped with motors. The first time I took my daughter on a jet ski, I dumped us. Twice. When I first learned how to drive a truck, I hit a car door that opened in my path. I rolled a trash dumpster into a freshly constructed block wall. I rear-ended a car and, well, you get the point. But I'm not easily deterred. When my friend Jeff surprised me with a motorcycle riding class for my birthday, I was psyched to learn how to ride. I figured that I'd be well-prepared thanks to the professional instruction, none of which I had for either the Ski-Doo or the Mack truck. It seemed to work. I learned what the instructors had to teach, and I passed the competency test that spring with flying colors. I was, the instructor said, a quote-unquote natural. Eventually, I knew that the day would come, the day Jeff would want to go riding with me. I figured he would want to see how well I'd done with his gift, to evaluate his return on investment, so to speak. That day came in the fall, We met at Hal's Harley-Davidson, where I'd be renting a bike for the day. After 45 minutes of the kind of paperwork that would make anyone wary of what they're doing, forms with names like the inherent dangers of motorcycle operation, waiver of liability, as well as several charges to my credit card for rental, multiple insurance policies, and a $2,000 security deposit just in case, we were almost ready to ride. Just needed to do a simple figure-eight pattern through the parking lot twice. And I made it without incident. And actually, I started off quite rough, but recovered, thankfully. And at least I was good enough to go. The Heritage Softail bike was pretty. Okay, cool. Cobalt blue. It was a tad, two times, in fact, heavier than the Buell model I'd trained with in my Rider's Edge course. Like the Buell, though, this bike had five gears, a clutch, an accelerator, and most importantly, front and rear brakes. What could go wrong? I won't bore you with all the details, but I will mention that I enjoyed myself a lot, mostly. Jeff is an experienced rider, 
the kind for whom 500 miles a day is not just doable, but exciting. An expert, fair to say. As he led me from the dealership onto the freeway, which was my first time on the freeway, and into the country and farmland of southeastern Wisconsin, I was into the way the wind, the rumble of the engine, and the beautiful scenery blended seamlessly together to create a unique, put-a-smile-on-your-face kind of experience. Until I heard that noise. Jeff and I had just had lunch at the Fox and Hounds and were on our way to Oconomowoc Lake. We harlied along a country road lined with trees announcing fall's arrival with their beautiful, colorful leaves. The road was built to curve gently around the trees, preserving their beauty. Relying on my training, I leaned the bike softly to the right, then softly back to the left to navigate the curves. Not softly enough, though. That became obvious when I heard and felt the crash bar under my left foot scrape on the road, the result of a pinch of attention mixed with a dash of incompetence. No problem, though. My brain was quick to process the fact that scrape, in bike speak, means bad. It sent a message to my body to pull up. Now. Trouble was, my brain forgot to tell my body exactly how much to pull up. Lacking that critical piece of information, my body did what came naturally. It pulled up a lot. Too much, it turned out. Overcorrecting is, I think, the clinical term for what was happening. Because of my brain-body miscommunication, the soft tail and I were headed, helplessly, I concluded, straight for the garage of a house that seemed ridiculously close to the road. Sensing an imminent collision that would be bad for my existence, my brain sent another command, brake. My body did as it was ordered. I was braking, losing my balance, and looking for non-garage landing alternatives when I spotted the mailbox posts, the 4 by 4 kind, and a tree. Decision time. The posts won the quick, which is softest test my mind self-conducted. As the inevitable collision approached, my instinct was to lay the bike along with me down and slide, like a baseball player stealing a base between the posts and the tree. Safe! Dust was hanging in the air all around me when I opened my eyes to see what happened. The decorative rocks dressing up the mailbox posts had spewed onto the driveway disturbed by me and the bike. I was able to extricate myself from under the bike and quickly surveyed the damaged. Minimal. Three thoughts dominated my moment. First, I hope no one is home at this house. They weren't, I think. I hope no one drives along and sees me here, pathetically looking at my bike. Correction, Hal's bike, all cobalt and majestic, on its side by the mailbox. They didn't. Third, my instructor might be rethinking his urinatural assessment. My heart was pounding, the byproduct of fear mixed with adrenaline and embarrassment. I knew there was only one thing to do, of course, and that was to pick up that bike like a brave soul and carry on. Get right back on that horse. Power, so to speak. Lifting the bike up was easier than I'd anticipated despite the extra pounds of dirt that had collected on the foot pad and the front fork. Once I had the bike upright, I got back on and fired the engine. It stalled. I gulped. I fired the engine again. It stayed running. I tapped the gear shift to first, 
but it wouldn't go into gear because the foot pad was jammed into the crash bar. Nothing wrong with second gear, I thought. And with that, I made my way back up the road. Total time from touchdown to liftoff, probably 30 seconds or so. As I got back up the hill, I saw Jeff coming toward me, looking for me like you look for a lost pet. We pulled over and stopped at the next intercession to assess the damage. Initial analysis, bent footrest peg, no biggie. Lucky. My pride was damaged more than the bike. Security deposit, preserved. Jeff was worried that I was okay. Apparently, despite his experience, he'd never seen anyone crash before, and at least technically, he didn't see me either. Realistically, going on was the only option. After all, I wasn't going to walk the bike back, and the chances of crashing again were, I hope you'll agree, remote. I mean, this wasn't a jet ski, you know. I'd love to tell you that the rest of the trip went along without incident, and so I will. And it did. By day's end, I felt good about our ride. Spending time with Jeff on the open road and learning, okay, improving how to handle a bike on the road. Sure, we noticed more damage to the bike throughout the day. Broken taillight, bent turn signal assembly, stuff like that. Minor issues, especially if the bike's your own rather than a rental. When we got back to Hal's, I thanked Jeff and encouraged him to get on his way. No sense in having him share my humiliation with the rental manager. I didn't know this at the time, but motorcycle rental managers lose their smile and turn white when you tell them you've crashed their bike. They also reach for the, the clipboard. I was thinking that 10 minutes to 5 on a Saturday afternoon is about the worst time to report a mishap like this. Sort of ruins their weekend and all. I must admit that Bud handled it well. No laughing or cussing. And I commend him on his eye for detail, as he managed to find even more things wrong with the bike than Jeff and I did. Imagine that. Of course, Bud couldn't tell me what the repairs would cost because, surprise, the body shop was closed, and they'd need to give it the once-over as well. Turns out the body shop also caught that the front fender was tweaked, something that even Bud had missed. Long story short, about 800 bucks in repairs. Would you like me to put that on your card, Bud asked, rhetorically, but respectfully. The crash cost me dollars and some pride, and wouldn't you know, my right shoulder, the one that absorbed the 4x4, hurt a lot by the time I got home. Bruised but not broken. But all things considered, it saved me from the tree and the house, and as a bonus, provided another motorized mishap story to share. All lessons come with pain. So you, it sounds like a great birthday gift. You received a motorcycle rental for a day along with a training lesson. That sounds like a great present. Yeah, my, my friend Jeff uh, was this, had been into motorcycles for a long time, and he thought, well, you know, give you a training thing. You can go get your license, and then maybe we can ride together. So he gave me the, the training thing, and I spent a weekend learning to, well, it's actually a week. But a weekend of, it's actually a week, but a weekend of actual riding the rest of his classroom. Uh, and I, I got, I, I got a hundred. I was like the, you know, top, wow. of, top in the, top in the class. Yeah. Wow. So before we talk about what happened that day, have you had an interest? Is, is this something that you've wanted to do in your life? 
I've more, always been more of a four-wheel person or okay. an 18-wheel person. All right. uh, so it wasn't like big on my radar, but I felt like I can drive everything else. Why wouldn't I be? Why wouldn't I get a motorcycle license too? Sure. So and when he when he gave it to me, I was like, well, I'm now I kind of have to. All right. So you hit the road with Jeff and went out to some beautiful areas of yeah. you know lovely southeastern Wisconsin. And was it a good day? It it was a good day um, with with just a little bit of drama, a little bit of drama in it after lunch um we were up in the holy hill area and we took off again and he was sort of leading the way i didn't know where we were going so i just followed him wherever he wherever he was going and um, we were on i don't even remember the name of the road but a kind of a windy back road and it was kind of neat because you're leaning the bike one way leaning it the other and then one one of one of those leaning things uh, i lent it too far and uh and hit the ground and then i tried to recover and i i I lost control of the bike and i smashed in the front yard of these people who fortunately weren't home so you you wiped out the bike what's the first thing that goes on in your mind when you when you dump a bike get back up before (laughs) jeff realizes that i'm not behind him anymore so that was the very first thing on my mind was get out get up get on and get out of here and And were you able to do that yeah uh, I mean, I was able to do it, but as I started off, he was coming back because he'd looked back, evidently, and I wasn't there. And All was, right. Um, but I was able to get back up, get on, and get out of there. All right. So the bike was drivable the rest of the day. You continued your day. We, we did. Uh, we stopped a few more times along the way, and every time we stopped, we noticed something else that was broken, bent, dented, or, um, or otherwise not the way it should be. Uh, but yes, we we kept going the whole day. All right, yeah. and and you shared when you eventually took the bike back to the shop that bike rental managers actually lose their smile and turn a bit white and grab a clipboard when yeah. when the report comes back that you dumped the bike over. Yeah, the dreaded clipboard. So the first thing they tell you when you leave, or maybe not the first thing, the last thing they tell you when when you leave with the bike is, don't damage the bike. Yes. Got it. I won't damage the bike. When you come back and you've damaged the bike, um, yeah, they're just not happy. So he brought the clipboard out, and I'm like, Jeff, why don't you just go? Because this is going to take a while. Right. And, uh, yeah, so we had to document all the damage. So um, just kind of in wrapping up, what – because you're you're really good with lessons, lessons learned. So what, what lesson do you draw from a day like this? Well, um, pain is a process – uh, learning involves pain, uh, maybe not always physically, but in this case it was physical. Um, so it's not the bike's fault, it's my fault, uh, and, and I just need to keep going because I'll get through the pain and I'll be better. That's great. Well, given especially that, that you're, you're okay, it's a, it's a fun story to share and you're living life to its fullest. So... Thanks for bringing the motorcycle story to us. Yeah, thanks for asking. You bet. Want to drive? He asked. Sometimes my friend Peter can't sleep, and when that happens, he sometimes turns to YouTube for curiosity and somnolence. He told me about a video he found the other night when he was sleepless. It was a video with a trucker explaining how to drive an 18-speed transmission as he drove it up the road, and it was cool. He has like 2 million views. 
I could tell he was very excited about this find. Since I'd driven these kinds of trucks, I was curious to see how a video like that could get 2 million views. We found it on my iPad and watched it. Yep, it was a guy explaining how to drive a truck. It reminded me of my day with Michael. Billy Garrity dug the graves at St. Dennis Cemetery, where I worked summers during high school. He'd drive his backhoe up Haverford Road from his shop, then turn left, crossing the bridge over the trolley tracks, before climbing the Eagle Hill to the cemetery. His backhoe was an old, yellow Alice Chalmers. It rocked back and forth like it wanted to bounce as he drove it on the road, as all backhoes do. Its hydraulic cylinders leaked, leaving a stain of oil wherever it worked. Its deodorant was diesel. I also worked at the cemetery during my second semester of my college freshman year because I'd dropped out of school. Billy's machine wasn't always strong enough to break through the frost of winter. Sometimes we laid blankets on the ground for a few days before he came. Other times we jackhammered through the frost. The jackhammering and working outside in the cold caused me to question my gap semester decision. Besides digging graves, Billy also had a trucking business. He hauled construction equipment to and from job sites all over the tri-state area. People at the cemetery always talked about how rich Billy was, even though he looked unrich to me. His wife wears diamonds and fur coats, they'd say. If that was true, it had to have been awkward and he came home all dusty and diesel what with her being so well fashionable. I could imagine her not wanting to get close. Not exactly a match, I'd thought. But I also heard that opposites attract, so who knows. The guys at the cemetery could have been making that up, too, just to mess with me. Wouldn't have been the first time. I wanted to drive a truck like Billy's. Not drive it, really, just go for a ride. It took me a long time to get up the nerve to ask him. Although he went with Billy, he was in his 50s at the time, and Never said much to us cemetery kids. At 18, it made me nervous to think about asking. After several botched attempts, the kind where you're in the right spot at the right time and your mouth quits working, I finally made the ask. You sure you know what you'd be getting into, son? He asked, trying to talk me out of it. We start early and end late, he said. It'll be a long day. No problem. He said, okay. Be at the yard at 6 a.m. I didn't know what I was getting into. I don't think Billy knew either. I wanted to drive a truck since I was four. Besides a pickup truck, the only big truck I'd ever driven was the cemetery's pale blue International Harvester dump truck. From the front, its cab reminded me of an elephant's face, the dual split windshields, its eyes, and the sloping hood, the beginning of its trunk. I can't explain why it didn't have ears, but it still made me think of an elephant. Although it was built in the 70s, its hood opened like a Model T's, hinged in the middle on both sides. It had a five-speed transmission with a two-speed rear end and a bench seat with enough room for three, maybe four guys. We used it for flowers, mostly. We'd toss them in the back of our pickup and then dump them into a pile behind the barn. When the pile got large, we load the elephant and drive it to the transfer station. 
It made me sad how much flower money was wasted at funerals. Billy's auto car was a black non-sleeper. Auto car was a strange name for a truck brand. It seemed contradictory. The low boy attached to it was a triaxle with a frame made of heavy steel that sandwiched a deck of thick wooden boards. The low in the name was for good reason. There were a few inches of space between the bottom of the trailer and the ground, enough for maybe a softball to roll underneath it. Michael parked his pickup next to the rig. He drove the auto car for Billy. He unlocked the cab and started the engine before walking across the street to get a cup of coffee. He hadn't seen me in my car. I almost chickened out and took off, scared away by something I couldn't describe. Battling against that instinct, I got out and introduced myself when Michael returned with his coffee. Oh yeah, you're the kid from the cemetery Billy told me about, he said, as he placed the coffee cup in the truck. Thanks for letting me go along with you today. No problem, kid. Michael opened a toolbox mounted on the trailer and grabbed a small sledgehammer from inside. He walked around the rig, hitting each tire with the sledge. Got to make sure the tires aren't flat, he informed me as he walked around the truck. He also checked the lights and the turn signals before climbing into the driver's seat. He moved his coffee just behind the shifter, between the seats, and leaned over to unlock the passenger door for me. Okay, all set, he said, while depressing the air brake supply knobs and putting the transmission into gear. He lit his first cigarette, then eased the clutch out, and we were on our way. He told me that our first stop would be in Atlantic City, about an hour and a half from Billy's yard, to pick up a machine. Although he called me kid, Michael didn't look to be much older than me. Maybe mid-twenties or so. Younger than I'd pictured he might be. He had an Italian look, darker skin, thick black hair. He was neither tall nor short. He wore a t-shirt that he'd cut the sleeves from so both his arms were exposed from his hands to his shoulders. Michael was the kind of smoker who didn't allow for much time between cigarettes. He was able to shake a new one from his pack and light it with the cigarette heating element from the dashboard with one hand. The process was elegant, the byproduct of a lot of practice. I watched him closely as he drove. He played the truck's transmission like an instrument, back and forth through the H pattern and up and down from the low gears to the high ones. He only used the clutch when the truck was stopped. Otherwise, he was able to shift by orchestrating a harmonic balance between his right foot working the gas pedal and his right hand working the shifter. We crossed the Walt Whitman Bridge to get to New Jersey. By this time, rush hour was in full bloom and the traffic crawled slowly but steadily across the bridge, like a caterpillar making its way across a path. On the Delaware River below, barges and container ships plowed a path through the water or took up parking spots at the port terminal. I hate this effing bridge traffic, Michael mumbled to himself, like I wasn't there, like it was another of his habits. Once we crossed the bridge, I figured we'd have clear sailing to the Jersey Shore. It wasn't long, though, before Michael pulled the rig over to the side of the road, stopping it just before the entrance to a convenience store. Gotta take a piss, he told me, as he set the air brakes, forcing air from the relief valve and causing a puff of dust to ooze from underneath the truck, 
like smoke escaping from a fire under a door. Today, I never miss an opportunity to pee, but back then, I sat and waited. I had a more forgiving bladder. When he returned to the truck, Michael had two more packs of Marlboro and a case of beer. I was expecting the cigarettes, but the beer seemed weird. Michael put the truck into gear, and we were on the road again. Wasting no time, he opened up the case and popped the top on his first can of the day, at least as far as I knew. His habit for beer wasn't all that different from his habit for cigarettes. Want one? He offered. We arrived in Atlantic City and made our way to the main road that bordered the beach. There'd been a nor'easter the week before. Parts of the road were still flooded, and the sand from the beach had been washed onto the sidewalks. Michael grabbed a piece of paper on which Billy had written the description of the machine and its location. There it is, he told me, pointing at the windshield. Michael parked the rig on the side of the road. He pulled the air brake knobs, activated the flashers, and engaged the PTO, which is a pump that powered the trailer's hydraulic system. The machine was a large cat bucket loader that would have dwarfed Billy's backhoe had they been side by side. Michael and I got out. He put on his work gloves and handed me a pair. The trailer was designed to detach its flat part from the curved part that was hooked to the tractor. The hydraulic system forced a piston down to the road and lifted the flat part up to make this happen. Michael climbed back into the tractor and pulled it ahead 10 yards or so. I flipped down the two steel ramps on each side of the deck because it was obvious that needed to be done. The front of the flat part was now on the ground, making it easy for the machine to be loaded. Michael started the loader and with the key that was under the mat. He told me later that if I ever wanted to steal a piece of construction equipment, the keys were always left in them. The loader roared to life as a puff of black smoke belched from the exhaust stack. He drove it to the gap between the tractor and trailer, positioned it so that he could back it onto the trailer. Michael maneuvered the loader with ease and precision because it was built to bend in the center. He positioned it so that the loader's steel bumper rested near the rise of the deck where the axles began and set the loader bucket down on the front of the deck. Its knobby tires stuck out over the edges of the trailer. The oversized load sign on the back of the trailer and the front of the tractor informed that fact to the driving public. Michael shut down the loader climbed down the ladder from its cab, and jumped down to the ground. He hooked the tractor back to the trailer and raised it up again using the hydraulic piston. I helped him retrieve the heavy, thick steel chains that we'd use to secure the machine to the trailer. Don't want this bitch moving on me, he said. There was a pattern of tie-down points he knew well how to use. He ratcheted binders to to tighten the slack from each chain. With the machine secure, Michael climbed back in the truck, retrieved the four empty beer cans, and tossed them in a trash can on the side of the road. Dead soldiers, he called them. He'd had three. Me, one. My memories betray me on exactly where we hauled the loader to, but it was a construction rental yard in central New Jersey. The journey was uneventful. The unloading, flawless. It was at least a three-beer trip for Michael, and another for me. 
eight dead soldiers in all, before noon. From there, we headed south. Michael told me that our next stop was in Voorhees, New Jersey. We'd be picking up a track hoe there and hauling it to the cat dealer in Conchahokan, PA, near King of Prussia. Michael continued to float through the gears and navigate the truck like a pro. Although I'd only had two beers to his six, I could feel it. Something, at least. An impact. He, on the other hand, seemed to get better as the day went on. As if the beer and cigarettes were performance enhancers, or vitamins. After we grabbed our toll ticket to enter the New Jersey Turnpike, Michael popped and downed another, and then one more. Not long after, we stopped at a rest rest stop to take another leak. As we walked back to the truck, Michael stopped and looked at me. I couldn't see his eyes through the shade of his sunglasses, but he cracked a smile. Want to drive? He asked. Part 2. Want to drive? Michael asked. I did. But I said no, because that's what I should have said, and because I was 18, had been drinking, never drove a tractor trailer, didn't have a license, wasn't an employee. The reasons kept coming. What the F, kid? You didn't come out to waste your whole day just sitting there watching me, did you? Well, in fact, I had, I said to myself. No one's going to know. You'll be fine. As only a teenager can, or a couple of young men with eight dead soldiers between them could, I started to warm up to the rationality of Michael's argument. Yeah, kid, what the F, I told myself. This is a great opportunity, exactly what you want, in fact. You're not going to let your good upbringing and and stupid rules get in the way of accepting this incredible offer, are you? Well, Michael asked, tapping his watch with his right index finger. Okay, let's do it. For those of you who might be freaked out by how irresponsible we had just decided to be, I'm with you. It was a dumb plus-plus idea, but I digress. I climbed into the auto car's driver's seat and could barely reach the pedals. I looked in Michael's direction, and he pointed to a bar under the seat that I pulled up, allowing me to slide the seat forward. My heart was thumping so hard, I was sure that it was moving my shirt in and out the byproduct of extreme fear and mild excitement. I began to sweat like I'd just sprinted a mile. Profuse perspiration. I depressed the clutch with my left foot, put the stick shift into second gear, and pushed in the yellow and red air knobs on the dash, like I'd seen Michael do, to release the brakes. Then I eased my left foot off the clutch, and the auto car began to move. We were off. Although Michael may have thought I'd just been sitting in the passenger seat all morning, the truth is I'd been paying close attention and learning. I'd watched what he'd been doing and was replaying what I'd seen in my mind right now and trying to do it myself. It wasn't pretty or smooth. I missed a few shifts as we made our our way down the rest stop ramp and back onto the turnpike. The gears ground and the truck bucked forward when I put it into gear the wrong way. Let the RPMs come down. You're shifting too fast, Michael coached. I remembered. Shift. Neutral. Pause. Shift to the next gear. Trucks don't just calmly go into gear like a car as long as you've got the clutch in. Timing is important. Everything's got to sink. 
Michael seemed comfortable in the passenger seat, right at home, in fact. He drank another beer and even dozed off for a few minutes, like he was in good hands, before waking up and having another. I, on the other hand, was a wreck. The truck was so wide it barely fit in between the white lines of the highway. It was hard for people driving cars to see me, given the height disparity, but I was sure that the other truck drivers who passed me knew I was a phony, that I shouldn't be where I was. When you look at the hood ornament, you should see the lane stripe on the right, Michael professored me. That's how you know when you're centered. I was managing to keep the truck going down the road, maybe even getting a little comfortable, when I saw the sign. Toll, two miles. Of course, there was no open road tolling at this time, so this sign meant that I'd have to bring the truck to a stop, pay the toll, and pull the truck back out of the toll booth at 18, with no license, and with a, by now, 10-beer drinking captain in the passenger seat. I can't do that, Michael. Do what? he asked. That, the toll booth. I can't pull this into the toll booth. Why not? It's just a stop in the road. You can do it. I can't. What if I hit something? Miss something? I don't know. I can't. There's really no option, he said, as we passed the toll one mile sign. You can do it. You have to do it. I wondered, how can he be so calm? Why was he trusting me? What did he not have to lose? I made it, like Michael said I would. The toll taker took my money and gave me a receipt without even looking. Just held his arm up high enough for me to reach. I put the truck in gear to leave and stalled it. I looked at Michael in desperation. It's okay. Just put the clutch in. Start it again, he instructed. I did and got the truck out of the toll booth, making sure the trailer came through straight, missing the concrete barriers. Can I pull over now? I asked, or maybe pleaded. Had enough? Michael smiled. Sure, kid. I'll take over. We exchanged seats and got back on the road. I grabbed a beer, and so did Michael. Cheers, we said, and we tapped cans. I needed mine. He just wanted his. Michael and I picked up the excavator in Voorhees, loading it up the same way we'd done the other machine that morning, except that this time Michael drove the machine onto the trailer deck instead of backing it on because its hydraulic arm and bucket needed to bend and rest in the well between the trailer's wheels, like a long V on its side. It had steel tracks, like a bulldozer, that extended beyond the sides of the trailer, so Michael put up the oversized load, oversized load signs again. I'm not sure what the machine weighed, but it lowered the trailer so much that I thought a softball might not roll under it any longer. The auto car lumbered under the excavator's tonnage. That didn't phase Michael, of course. He grabbed another beer to accompany his cigarette and hammered on down the road. When we arrived back at the Walt Whitman Bridge to cross back into Pennsylvania, Michael pulled off to the side of the road. Be right back, he told me. He walked to a payphone, picked up the receiver, pushed some coins into the slot. He said something to whoever had answered the phone, but it was a short conversation, and he was quickly headed back to the truck. I watched from the comfort of the cab. What's up? I asked. 
escort, he said. Turns out that all oversized loads require an escort from a state trooper to cross the bridge. Michael lit a cigarette and dug his right hand through the empties he'd been discarding in the case box to find a full one, which he nonchalantly opened and started drinking. Aren't you worried? I asked. About what? The cop. They never get out of the car. They just pull up, put the lights on, and follow across. No big deal. I wondered how many times Michael had crossed the bridge with an escort before he knew their behavior wouldn't change and that his could. Just as he'd said, the trooper came up behind us and activated the car's lights. Michael moved the auto car through the gears, dragging the heavy excavator up the incline on the Jersey side before coasting it down the decline into Philadelphia. No one was the wiser. We dropped the machine in the Conshohocken equipment yard. A couple of the dealership guys came out to inspect the unit and helped us unload. Michael seemed to know them well, and they joked around with each other, like guys in the same business do. He gave the guys a couple of beers he had left and threw away the empties. Seemed like a normal thing, as most things Michael did that day. By the time we got back to Billy's yard, it was close to six, and everyone else had already gone home. Michael backed the truck into its assigned spot on the first try, even though doing it required him to block the street and nearly jackknife the rig to do so. I'll fuel her in the morning, he said, to himself more than to me. Michael grabbed his lunchbox, his remaining cigarette pack, and the rest of the case. Four left, he said. Want one? No, thanks. Thank you for taking me today, Michael, and for letting me drive. Don't tell anybody about that kid, and you're welcome, he said, his voice a bit higher and his smile a little toothier than I'd noticed before, like maybe the day was catching up to him. You can take off now, he said, dismissing me before he used the key to unlock the shop door to drop off his paperwork or whatever. I did what Michael said. Although I hadn't had a beer for a while, I thought it a good idea to stop at the Wawa to buy some gum that I chewed on my way home. I never told anyone, not for decades at least, not till now. I got what I wanted that day, to ride in a big rig, a young kid's goal achieved, a day I'll never forget. It didn't dawn on me to be worried about Michael, not until much later at least. Instead, I was impressed, maybe in awe. I realize that sounds stupid now, Like I said earlier, I knew we were being irresponsible. But that was a time in my life where things like the thing we did that day were cool, so long as you got away with them, which we did on that day, at least. So Want to Drive, you actually wrote a two-part blog, Want to Drive, Want to Drive or Not. And um, this was interesting. This was triggered by a friend of yours, Peter, who found a YouTube video on how to drive an 18-speed transmission, which, by the way, I can't even imagine. So it brought back memories for you of a a pretty big event. You were a grave digger in college. You worked with a guy named Billy who had a big truck. And you wanted to, what you said, drive a truck like Billy's. So... What, this was an interesting story. What happened here? Yeah, the whole backstory on this goes back to when I was four years old. When I was four years old, I lived across the street from a construction company. And I would sit on the curb in the afternoons 
and I would watch the guys come back with their trucks, and I just kind of fell in love with trucks. Fast forward from four years old to my teenage years, I'm working at the local cemetery, setting up for funerals, filling in after funerals, whatever, and the guy who digs the graves, uh, Billy, his name is Billy, he also has a trucking business, and uh, hauling heavy equipment around, and so one day I got up, I was so curious to to, to experience that, see what that was like. One day I got up the courage to ask him if I could go for a ride with one of his guys. And he said, well, he tried to talk me out of it. And then he said, okay, sure. Show up, you know, tomorrow at six. Yeah. So I did. So you, you showed up at six to spend the day with Michael. Yeah. And you did in fact get to ride in the truck, but then Michael kind of turned the tables on you. So what happened? Yeah, as we so we went down to Atlantic City. This was from Philadelphia. We went down to Atlantic City, picked up a machine, took it up somewhere in North Jersey, and then we were coming back. We stopped at a rest uh, rest stop, and then um, we were walking back to the truck. And he turns to me and he's like, "You want to drive?" And I'm like, uh, "No." And he's like, you're just going to come out here all day just to sit in the truck? He's like, come on, you want to drive or what? So I was like, hmm, okay. And, I, you know, he put me in. I, I, got, I got in and I, and I started driving. So pretty yeah. scary. And it's one of the wide load trucks, right? Yeah. We, we, didn't have a, we didn't have a machine on at that time, thankfully. Um, but, yeah, so it was a big, you know, big semi all right. right. And so one of the one of the um, parts of this day that you described was approaching a toll booth yeah. that you needed to fit this big rig through right. and um, had no choice but to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, once once he you know, we once we got started, he he kind of took a nap, <laughs> took a nap. So we we're on the Jersey Turnpike, I think. And we're driving down, and I, and I see the sign that there's a toll booth up ahead, like two miles or something. So I hit him, and I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. He's like, what? It's just a, you just steer between the toll booth. You got to stop anyway to pay him. I'm like, uh, okay. So, um, and those are the days before the open road tolling. So I, I actually had to pull in there, stop at the right spot, hand the money out to the toll taker, and, and get a rece- <laughs> receipt back. So it was very scary. It was very scary. So I'm, I'm just wondering, kind of as a conclusion to the story, throughout the whole rest of your life, how many times did you see a truck like that and, and kind of say to yourself, like, oh, my God, I drove one of those? Oh, well, a lot, because I did. When I, when I started my – well, even before I started my business. But uh-huh. I drove all the time. Okay. When I was, so it was actually inf- instructive and informative. All right. Um, so I've, I've – I've driven pretty much every kind of truck there is, so I, I feel good about it now. Good. <laughs> but, I, but at the time, I did not. That's great. Well, it's a fun story, a fun story for you to share. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for listening to this episode of the How It Happen podcast, where we believe that success doesn't happen unless you make it happen. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, please rate it and leave a comment as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or whatever you'd like to share. And of course, you can always find me at MikeMalatesta.com. See you next time. Thanks again for listening to the How Did Happen podcast.